Say right here. Oh, and I did want to say, you know, fireworks stands coming up. It is going to be a blast. Uh, I wanted to say that right after Jackson, but that didn't work. Um, we've been. Yes, yours was funnier. Mine was more desperate. Um, we've been talking about work. As we go into this season of the year, work changes for some of us a little bit. We are doing outdoor duties. We're in the wintertime. We avoid that. Or perhaps for some of us, our work schedule relaxes a little bit and we're on some kind of a summer break or a summer schedule. And I've been wanting to remind you that our work is holy. There are things about our work that God has called us to, and he calls us to do our work in ways that worship him. And so last week, we talked about work as worship. And uh, I, I brought to your attention that the, the word in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament for work, is the same word that they would use for worship, avodah. And so work is how we worship the Lord. And today we're going to talk, if you haven't already seen that on the screen or in your bulletin, we're going to talk about work as light. And so we're going to be looking at a passage from Matthew. But before we get into that, I, I'm reminded over and over again, and this week I was reminded in some, in some rather shocking ways, that, that around us in the world, people are at work doing incredible things, and yet it seems very, very dark around them. And so uh, over this past week, uh, we got word, uh, like you, that the, the, the fashion designer, Kate Spade, committed suicide. And um, the only reason I know who Kate Spade is is because my wife has sold some of her products at her store. And my wife came home and said, you know, she's well-known and very popular and very successful. Had a lot of money, but in spite of the value of her work and how many thousands and thousands of people appreciated that, she chose to leave this life by her own accord. And then later in the week, uh, we got the word that Anthony Bourdain, if you don't know who Anthony Bourdain is, that's fine. He is a, a TV figure. He's been a chef and a cook, and he travels all over the world. The reason I've been kind of a fan of Anthony Bourdain is because he did a, an episode for, I believe it was CNN, on Mozambique, where he went to Mozambique, and he ate their food, and he told their story of coming out of civil war and these wonderful people, and, I'm, and, and it's one of the best 45-minute document, uh, documentaries of the Mozambique people I've ever seen. And this guy knew how to communicate, and he knew food, but he was troubled, incredibly successful, and just chose to take his life this week. So even though you might be tempted to think that you know work is great when you make tons of money or you acquire a lot of fame, there are people around us that would remind us that money and fame do not equate to happiness. Money and fame don't get us to fulfillment. Because here's two people, they had it. They had it all. And yet their lives were so meaningless and hopeless, they just decided, I'm done. And the loss is ours. Their talent is gone. As we think about work and the darkness that comes sometimes when we are working, I'm reminded from time to time that for many of us, there are days of work that are really, really difficult. 
I've been tracking, you guys, many of you know that I track with Pastor Isaac up in uh, Osborne, Kansas. We, we coordinate our preaching schedules, we share resources, and we share ideas a lot. Um, and it's been just a valuable working relationship. And he sent me a description of his worst day at work. As we were talking about work and light, and he said, you know, this is what my worst day looked like, and it was terrible. He, he overslept, and then he, he was driving, he was speeding to go to work, and because he was speeding on a dirt road, he got a flat tire, so that put him even later, and then he was rushed when he got to work. He was a hired hand at a farm, and he was supposed to be hooking onto a trailer, and he wasn't paying attention, and he got frustrated, and he pulled the trailer and smashed his thumb. And ended up in the emergency room getting his thumb sewed up. And, and it, it just kind of went on from there. The, his worst day at work. And then he shared something with me. And many of you have seen this before. But he sent me a clip, a, 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 a link to a YouTube video of, so you think you're having a bad day at work. And I'm telling you, these people, I, I watched part of the video. And half of the time I'm laughing. And half of the time I'm just going, oh my, that's so bad. You know, these videos, you see a forklift driver who maybe is just a little bit inattentive and hits the gas instead of the brake and hits a, a rack of merchandise and the whole thing just cascades across the warehouse, destroying probably thousands, if not millions of dollars of merchandise. Or the guy at the construction site is running the crane and he's picking up something that's just a little bit too heavy for this huge, enormous crane. And in slow motion, it seems like the crane just starts to tip a little bit too far and everybody goes running and you realize it's not slow motion and the crane comes down and smashes an entire building. And then I go, wow, you know, a trip to the emergency room's not so bad. Better than a trip to court. So we see that there are dark times in our places of work. There are days where things just go bad and when things go wrong, our hearts get clouded and we get angry and we get desperate and we do things out of fear and fatigue and inattention that are irrevocable. And in the midst of this, we think about what it's like to be at work these days, and many of you know this far better than I do, that you go to work and you recognize the presence there does not welcome faith. You go to work and you realize people do not want you to talk about Jesus here, and Christianity really is not a welcome topic at your workplace. Maybe that's not your workplace. Maybe there's, there's a sense of comfort with that and people welcome that and, and I rejoice in that. But I actually rejoice even more if you're at a place where people go, do not talk about religion. That actually brings me a little bit more inspiration because I think then you get to shine light there. That's like sending missionaries to the people who've never heard the good news. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what we've seen in America that has happened over time in our culture and our struggle to reconcile church and state is that in many workplaces, religion has been 
pushed aside. We've been told that it doesn't belong there. And we've secularized the workplace. We've secularized the marketplace because there seems to be an incompatibility with the, the tenets of faith, and particularly of Christian faith, and the tenets of business and capitalism. And so don't bring that kind of stuff in here because we need to do business. I'm thankful and I'm reminded from time to time by some certain people that come around in my life who know how to live out Christian principles right there in the workplace and can tell you that you, you don't have to sacrifice your Christian principles to get ahead, to make a living, to build a business. Because I tell you, you know this as well as I do. There are a lot of people that say, if you really want to make a profit, you better be willing to compromise something and cheat a little bit and tweak things here and there in ways that hurt others. On this, I'm going to be really idealistic because here's what I would suggest to you. I, I think that's the world's definition of how you do business and I think it discounts what God can do for a business that goes far beyond what we do. What God can do in a workplace that goes far beyond even our spoken word. But some of you know very well and have told me stories about how your faith is really not welcome in the workplace. And it means that those places where we work in schools, in factories, in offices, in hospitals, and courthouses are going darker and darker. So, that's a place where the light needs to shine. With that in mind, I want to look at Matthew chapter 5. Just a few verses. Jesus is talking, and he's talking to his followers, and he's telling them, you know, you bring light. We need to be reminded, I need to be reminded over and over again, that I represent Christ. Not because I wave a placard, but because the presence of Christ dwells in me and wherever I go, the presence of Christ goes. So this is what he says to his followers. He says, you are the light of the world. And you would say, hold on, time out, Jesus. You got it wrong. You got it wrong. Not you, I. You should say, I am the light of the world. Well, he did say that at another point. But then he changes gears here and he says to the disciples, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, and, and pay attention to these words, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You know, there's a difficult thing that happens and we don't navigate it very well at times where Jesus calls us to be his emissary. He calls us to be his representation. He calls us to be his body. And we get uncomfortable with that because we realize that we're frail and we are not going to be a very good representation because something's going to go wrong. The computers are going to crash or the, you know, things are going to get messed up between me and my boss, and I am not going to represent Jesus well today. But Jesus says, and he speaks, and he whispers into your ear, 
but you are the light of the world. You're the light on the hill. You're that shining city that people rely on to see. So let your good deeds shine out. And I think that pertains directly to our work. So if that's the case, then let's suggest that if we represent Jesus and he asks us to do that, oh, and by the way, one of the difficulties with that is that when, when he calls us to represent him, we have a tendency to go beyond being just that kind of a conduit or a conductor of the light to saying, you know, maybe I, I am the Messiah here. So, the, you know, the one side is we say, I can't do it. I'm such a poor representation. I'm going to mess it up and Jesus is going to look bad and I'm going to embarrass the entire kingdom of God. Or the other side of it is I'm, I'm so good at it that maybe it's actually me and not Jesus. Let's not fall off on either side of that, but let's stay to that narrow path in the middle where, yes, Lord, we are here for you. You shine through us. And when the light matters more than our comfort or more than the darkness and the fear of the darkness around us, then our lives tend to change. And our lives, that when they are saturated with the light of Christ, I would suggest to you that it is impossible for the light not to shine. Just as an element of physics, that if our light, if our, sorry, if our lives are saturated with the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's impossible that light will not get out. Years ago, I heard a guy on the radio, it was a local Christian radio station that we listened to a lot, and he was talking about his son, and he had been trying to lead his son and disciple his son in spiritual things. And his son was just a little guy, just a toddler, you know, four or five years old maybe. And he was telling that he was talking to his son about asking Jesus into your heart. And he was using that terminology about inviting Christ into your life. And he went on and on with his son about, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. And the son got really uncomfortable and didn't want to talk about it and resisted. And he got worried and he said, you know, I wonder what was going on spiritually. Why is my son not open to hearing about Jesus and having Jesus in his life? And finally the son said, I, I don't want you to talk about that, Dad. And he said, why not? And he said, because if Jesus comes into my heart, there's not enough room there. He's going to stick out. And I think... He got it. That's exactly right. If Jesus actually occupies our lives, there's no way our lives have the capacity to contain all of that. There's no way our lives are so tight and put together that you can put that kind of light inside and it doesn't shine through anywhere. It's going to get out. And it should. And over time, we should do that hard discipleship work of tearing open the obstacles and say, let more and more light shine. And I think that's what Paul was referring to. And he said, just less of me, Lord, and more of you. May I diminish that you would increase. That my life would see, be so saturated by Jesus Christ that it's going to show and especially show on those worst days, in those darkest days, when things are tense and difficult and painful in the places that we work, say, okay, now, now I get to burn really, really bright. In fact, if it's the light of Christ, we need to be reminded that it is an inextinguishable light. 
It's a light that does not go out. It's eternal light. For years, I used to drive from western Kansas on Highway 96 until Great Bend, coming back to McPherson. I would drive, and then at Great Bend, I would take 56 from there on into the west side of McPherson. And when I did that, I would drive through the little town of Lyons. It's a great little town. And Lyons has that kind of that typical Norman Rockwell town square. There's a, there's a kind of a, a band shelter, I guess you call it. It's not really a shell. And, and, and there's a courthouse there, and it's a beautiful park, and there's a cannon from some war, and, and, and memorials there in the park. And, and on the, the northeast corner of that square, there's an edifice, there's a statue, or a, it's not even really a statue, it's just kind of a, a cube of stone that's a memorial to the soldiers from Lyons, Kansas, that perished in the war. And there's no other artwork except there's a flame at the top, and there's this flame that just burns. And so over the years of driving that drive back and forth, back and forth, hundreds of times, I would look to see if the flame was burning. You know, is it always on? And of course, at night, it was easy to see. If I came through at dark, you could see the, the flame. In the middle of the daytime, sometimes it was harder to tell. But I could not, I cannot remember a time driving through Lyons, Kansas, when I didn't see that flame burning. Now, some of you are familiar with Lyons, and you might know that it doesn't burn all the time. But that was just a reminder to me that, that the Lord's light is eternal. Now, there is somebody who takes care of that flame and makes sure that the gas line that runs it, the fuels it is there, it's lit. I, I don't know if they have to do something different in the rain. I suppose, you know, in our Kansas storms, there are times it goes out and somebody's got to go out there with a cigarette lighter and, you know, try and get the thing going. But the light, the flame of the Lord's holy presence never goes out. And in fact, in the Old Testament, God wanted to remind the people that his presence was always going to be there. And so he instructed them to build this tabernacle. And after they settled in the promised land, he instructed them to build the temple. I want you to know I'm always going to be there. The light will always shine. I'm always with you. And Jesus used those very words, I'm with you, till the end of time. The light will never go away. It will always be accessible to you. It is inextinguishable light. If that's the case, then whatever you do in work, however your day goes, that light is accessible. Not only to you, but probably through you as well. So we need to figure out how that works. How is it that when I'm really mad because things didn't go well and the computer crashed or I left stuff at home that I needed or I didn't study for that test, I can still shine the light. I would suggest to you that that's only possible by experiencing that profound, significant experience of God's grace washing over us and reminding us that our performance, while it's important, it is not critical to whether or not we are children of God. We do not perform our way into the kingdom. Instead, God gives us his grace and he says, you come to me and I, I will make you fishers of men. And there's a workplace analogy to that too. 
So figuring it out isn't really about what we have to figure. It's simply about giving access to God and saying, go ahead and come into my life, Lord. And whatever happens tomorrow morning, Monday morning, whatever happens through the rest of the week, let your light shine through me somehow. If you start praying that prayer, beware. Just look out. Because you know things are going to happen that are going to look rather dark and discouraging, that are going to give you opportunity to shine that light. People are going to get mad. People are going to have things go wrong. There's going to be all kinds of minor, if not major, catastrophes in the workplace because then God gets to say, here, see what I look like? How I am peace in the storm? How I am light in the darkness? So, If the light matters more, it's because it's an eternal light. And it's available to all of us. And he shines through us. But that means, then, that our workplaces give us the opportunity to work as, what I call, work as a missionary. I was recently reading something where um, a couple of missionaries who are doing work in the Middle East have, have asked that the churches that support them no longer use the term missionary. And they, they wrote an article about this saying, we don't want you to call us missionaries any longer uh, for a couple of reasons. And they were talking about how, you know, missionary comes with this, all this historical baggage of what missionaries used to look like that went to other parts of the world and really looked more like colonialism or, or um, imperialism. And so we don't want to look like that. And then they went on to talk about the politics of the day and being in the Middle East. And if you identify us as missionaries, a government will identify us as missionaries and we'll be persona non grata. They'll ask us to go home because they don't want us there doing this work. And so don't call us missionaries. And, and yet there's the struggle. How do you identify these people who have now dedicated their lives to go to another place, another culture, a very dark culture, and live for Jesus and share his love and invite other people to come and enjoy the love of Jesus in their lives. And what do you do with that? And I know if I were to say to many of you, you know, I want you to start thinking of yourself as a missionary when you go to work, when you punch the time clock, and when you sit down at the desk, I want you to think of yourself as a missionary. You're going to go, no, I'm not. And I would answer you, yes, you are. You see, your work is a cross cultural context that opens up your availability to make contact with what I would call our unreached people. In missionary terminology, we talk about unreached people, and so we talk about different cultures in different parts of the world where there are people who do not have access to the gospel. Maybe scripture is outlawed and you can't own Bibles, or perhaps you can own the Bibles, but you're not allowed to preach. We heard Uh, Reverend Jerry Coates up here talking about a place where one of our free Methodist pastors was told, you cannot baptize people, you'll get five years of jail for a baptism. So there's that, but there are other things that keep people unreached. Some of it's just geography, although that's going away. We live in a day and age where you can get just about anywhere in the world in 24 hours. But years ago, there were unreached people that lived so far from us that To get there took a long time, perhaps even years. Now we're beginning to talk about unreached people in terms of 
cultural constructs. And so we talk about places in Europe that are post-Christian and people there that think they've heard the story of the gospel, but they really haven't. They've heard about Jesus, but it's not very accurate and it's not real. And it's not really central to what Jesus Christ did for us. And it's more of a fairy tale and folklore. And they are becoming unreached people. And then there are people who are in transition, who are migrating around the world. And this is something that that I'm really passionate about, but there are people who are moving away from violence and famine in a place where they were cut off from the gospel. And just because they're fleeing, they are now hearing the good news. As I talked to Pastor Jerry, Reverend Jerry, a couple weeks ago when he was here with us, he told me uh, as we sat down, he goes, you know, Hank, you know we're the biggest free Methodist church in the world is right now? I can't tell you because this goes out over the internet. Talk to me afterwards. But I will tell you this. The country shocked me. I had ideas and I threw out two or three guesses and I was wrong. Because the biggest free Methodist church in the world is a place where people have run for their lives and found Jesus. And here's what I would suggest to you. There are people who come to your workplace who are running for their lives. I have got to get here and punch that time clock to pay that bill, to pay that debt, to keep my family fed, to keep my mortgage paid or my rent paid so that we can just live. And in that kind of context, my friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is incredibly powerful. So I would like you to, to begin to think in terms of there are people around me that they've, they've heard about Jesus, they know about Christmas, they know about Easter, and they've heard a lot of this from our culture, but they really don't know the good news of what Jesus does in our lives. I tell you what, I love it when I look at some of you and I see how your lives have changed in the years that I've known you. Where God has taken places of brokenness and pain and bound it back together and healed it. Where God has taken bad habits and behaviors and has been able to help you set some of those aside and learn new things and change the way we talk and the way we act. And as that happens in your life, you become that missionary. You shine that light. So if our workplaces are places of unreached people who are running just to live, then our, place, our workplaces are actually places to live. Some of you have heard this concept of a third place. It came out about, oh, 15, 20 years ago, and it was suggested that in everybody's life there are two places. The first place is your home. It's where you live. It's where you sleep at night. And it's the people whom you call family that you gather around you that are part of your family unit. That is your first place. The second place is your place of work. It's the place that you go to make a living. It's the place where you spend the second most significant amount of time during your week. For some of you, it might be the most time during your week because you're working extremely long hours. I hope not. That's the first 
And so the second place is a place where we really live. The third place was a suggestion that, that in society you can create these other places where people will choose to spend their time. And the company that latched onto this and pushed this the hardest was Starbucks. And so Starbucks put out an article about 20, 25 years ago that said, we want to be the third place. We want to be the place where people choose that when they're not at home and they're not at work, they're here. For some people in our culture, it's Walmart. Yeah. You know there are people who just go there and hang out. People watch. They just live there. For some people, the third place is a bar. I go there, I get a beer, and the people around there, they don't care. They don't care what kind of day I had. They don't care how my marriage is. They're just, here you go, pay for your beer, watch the game, and we don't care. You get to sit and stay. I would suggest to you that as as Christians, we should be working hard to make the third place right here. That the third place you live is in the house of God. And the house of God is not this building. You know that. The house of God is where God's people gather. And so in, a, in what, a week and a half, the house of God is going to be in the parking lot outside Ace Hardware at Tyler and Central, right? Two and a half weeks, Two and a half weeks sorry. Just trying to make sure you're well prepared there, Vanessa. Or maybe the house of God is where you're at at work. Because the body of Christ is there. So, I want you to choose to think of how your work gives you an opportunity to share this faith. To share this wonderful good news. Now you say, you know what, Pastor, if I were to turn to the guy in the next cubicle, if I were to turn to the guy at the next workstation and say, can I tell you about Jesus, I would soon be looking for other work. Or at the very least, people would choose not to work with me. I don't want to talk about that. And I would just say, if that's the case, you're doing it the wrong way. Here's what I would suggest to you. When it comes to sharing your faith, choose to live it first and foremost. Just live it out. Trust God. Pray to him. Ask him to help you conduct your work. And as you do that consistently and you start to see him there, I think you will not be the only one. Others will notice. And it will draw them to you. You know, I recently had a conversation with a businessman friend of mine. And we kind of talked around this issue of can you have Christian principles in the workplace. He was coming from a totally different angle and we didn't necessarily agree. And as I was thinking about this, I went back to the years when I was in seminary and I did construction work. I worked for a man who was a great believer and Bob became a good friend of mine. He sought me out at church. He attended church with us there and he came to me and he said, are you looking for a job? And I said, I'm always looking for a job because I was working for very little money. And he heard that I had done some construction work before that, had some experience. So he hired me. And when he hired me, he put me together with another guy. We worked in in teams of two. And so my partner was this guy named Tim. And he came to me one day and said, I want you to work with Tim because Tim doesn't know Jesus. And so I'm sitting here thinking, well, no pressure. 
you know, you're the seminary student. I'm going to put you with Tim, and you need to lead him to Jesus. Actually, I welcomed that. I said, sure, put me with Tim, because I knew Tim was a hard worker, and uh, he was a nice guy. And I said, I'd, I'd be happy to work with Tim. So he and I started working together, and he knew I was in seminary. He knew I was planning for the ministry. He didn't attend church at the time, and and that was okay, and we just became friends, and we would sit together in the service van eating sandwiches at lunch, and we would talk about our families, and we would talk about our spare time, and he'd tell me about his boat, and he would go to the lake on the weekends, and I told him that all my spare time at that point in my life was in a library, opening books and reading them and digesting them. And then it happened. The moment where all of a sudden my faith can be shared. It was Christmas Eve, and I didn't know it. I was with my family. We enjoyed Christmas together. Christmas Day came and went, and the day after Christmas, I was getting ready to go back to work. Very early in the morning, my phone rang, and it was my boss, Bob, and he said, Hank, I want you to drive to Tim's house, not to the job site today. Go there and pick him up and bring him to work. And I said, okay, is everything okay? He said, just, just go pick Tim up. He's got the service van, and I want you to drive, not him. I said, no problem. And so I got in my car. I drove to his house. He was out in front of his house waiting for me, and when I walked up, he just reached up and handed me the car keys. And I said, you ready to go? Yeah, ready to go. I jumped in the van. I, started, I didn't ask any questions. My mind was just going all kinds of places. What in the world's going on? And as we drove, he said, did Bob tell you what happened? I go, no. He just told me I needed to come here and pick you up, that we were meeting here today, and he wanted me to drive. Okay. We drove on in silence for about 20 minutes until we arrived at the, the job site, and we started unpacking our tools and getting our gear out. And he said, I suppose I have to tell you what happened. And I said, that's up to you. All I know is I'm supposed to drive today, and I don't care. We're going to work. It's going to be all right. I'm glad you're here. And he sat down on the bumper of that van and he goes, you know, Christmas Eve I had a few presents left to wrap and I was drinking. And I ran out of wrapping paper. And so I grabbed my car keys and I drove to the store to buy more wrapping paper and on the way back from the store I got pulled over, the DUI. He said, Hank, I spent Christmas in jail. My wife wouldn't come bail me out. And we just sat there for a moment and I, I, I knew the presence of God just opened up to me and said, this is your moment. And I said, Tim, what do I need to do, my friend? And he, he, this, this tough guy out of the hills of eastern Kentucky started to cry. And he said, I, I don't know whether I'll even be able to save my marriage or my job. I don't know what's going to happen. But he said, I'm going to need you to drive for a long time because I don't know when I'll get my license back. I said, okay, no problem. What else do you need me to do? Well, that's it. And I, I went on. I said, are you going to court? He goes, yeah, I got a court date. Do you need me to go with you to court? Why would you do that? And then I went on and I said, hey, later in the afternoon, I said, hey, when we get back, when I drop you off from work, I, I said, we got to get my car home and we were trying to figure this whole thing out. I said, how about if I come in and say hi to your wife and your kids? Why? And I said, I'm guessing Christmas was pretty lousy for you guys. He said, yeah. I said, can I just come in and say hi? And he goes, well, sure, of course. So we got back after work, and, and I walked up the sidewalk with him to the house, and he opened the door, and it was, man, it was, 
It was a cold day anyway, and it got colder when we walked in the house. And I go, hey, uh, Tim and I worked it out. I'm going to drive him to work. It's going to be okay. And you guys are going to get through this, and you're not alone. And, and just, you know how I am. I'm pretty free and easy with my emotions. And I said, and you know what? We love you guys. And I, I put my arm around Tim's shoulder and I said, we love you guys. And I said, I know Bob's not going to walk away from you guys. You got a job. We'll make sure that you get paid. And, and don't worry about that. That's taken care of. And his wife just sort of melted into a chair and started crying because she was worried about paying their house payment and making sure that food was on the table. I said, it's okay. We're going to do this. Over the next three months, I drove every day to work. And he was captive, man. He could not get away from me. I knew what he needed. And I loved him, and I shared with him, and eventually I prayed with him, and he came to church with us. And God did a work in him. It was great. Your workplace gives you the opportunity to share your faith. I don't know how, but here's what I tell you, friends. Just listen in your heart to Jesus. Because that's going to come along, for some of you, it's going to come along tomorrow. And just go, okay, God, you're going to have to show me how to use this. You're going to have to show me how to shine the light because I don't want to be offensive. I don't want to run them off. I don't want to scare them to death. I just want them to know that you love them and you will forgive them and you'll make them whole. So if that's the case, our work gets to serve as illumination together. We get to shine light together. I want you to choose to think about how you are called to work in terms of sanctified labor. And I don't care what you do. And I don't care if you're getting a paycheck for it or not. I don't care if it's in your home or outside the home. Whenever you go about labor, I want you to think of it as something holy. Whether it's mowing your lawn or getting your mail, God can use any opportunity He can use the most ordinary moments, the most mundane things of our lives to open up an opportunity to touch another person. And that is holy. That is a holy thing. And so if that's the case, if we can live like that, there is no problem with our faith moving out into the public arena. I got to tell you, I am deeply troubled, and some of you have shared this with me as well. It really bothers me when people say, well, the problem with our society today is we took God out of school. I don't know how you do that. Not with my theology. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. You cannot surgically remove him from a classroom. When people say, well, the problem is we need God in the White House. He's there. The problem is we need God in my office. If you're there and he's there, that's not the problem. Here's what we need, is we need to change our mindset from thinking that we should out-argue people of their opinion to out-loving people from their pain. And so, my friends, we have we've spent decades in America using the wrong tools. And we need to change that. And I, I just want to challenge you this week. If you say, yep, I'm going to shine the light for Jesus, then I want you to do it from your heart, not your mouth. Okay? Because the time will come where you'll get to say it if you do it with your heart. And that's the way faith moves back into the public arena.
People will never run from love. You know that? They will never run from your love. And so I just want to challenge you that your work is your mission. Your work is your mission. And God's going to use you this week somehow. And I look forward to hearing how that is. So feel free to come back, call me, text me, email me and say, Pastor Hink, you're not going to believe it? I'll go, yes, I do. Because God's going to use you in that. Band, come on up and we're going to pray. Lord God.